I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, April 24th, 2012. Coming up, is saturated fat safe or dangerous to eat? And red meat? And wouldn't you like a final answer to all of this? Well, scientifically, the answer really may be, it all depends. So I don't know if I have to apologize for the way things really are, but that's the way they are. Uh, what we showed is that this is really more important than even we had realized when we started this work. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. On your calendar, mark an announcement about something that has previously been unobtainable. Today, Planetary Resources Incorporated will announce itself to the world. Its promise is to wed space exploration and natural resources to add trillions of dollars to the global GDP and help ensure humanity's prosperity. Beyond that, little is yet publicly known about Planetary Resources' plans. However, its president and chief engineer, Chris Lewicki, is a co-author of a just-released study that advocates retrieving a 500-metric-ton asteroid robotically and putting it in orbit around the moon. According to the Keck Institute for Space Studies report, it will cost about $2.5 billion to snag a bus-sized asteroid, then haul it back into moon orbit. And those billions don't count the cost of what comes next, science projects involving that chunk of rock drilling, blasting, cutting, and crushing the rock to extract water and materials for radiation shielding. But in this mission, Planetary Resources has the support of deep pockets, such as Google CEO Larry Page, Microsoft's Charles Simonyi, Ross Perot Jr., and the director of Avatar, James Cameron. Why would they want to hang a big rock above the moon and then start hacking away at it? Well, in addition to gathering data for pure science, studying this man-moved moon orbiter may help defend the Earth from asteroids on a collision course. The rock would provide a relatively close-by target for astronauts to repeatedly practice landing on for much longer missions. And the mission itself might excite the public about going to the moon again or on to Mars. The press conference announcing the mission of planetary resources takes place today at 11.30 a.m. Mountain Time in Seattle. The web group Gizmodo says they will be covering it live, and you can download the report titled Asteroid Retrieval Feasibility Study. And continuing on the theme of asteroids, calling all amateur astronomers. If you have the right stuff and the right telescope equipment, NASA would like you to help in a project called Target Asteroids. The project is part of the upcoming OSIRIS-REx mission to improve basic scientific understanding of a special class of asteroids called near-Earth objects. NASA is hoping amateur astronomers can help in the mission by discovering new asteroids and studying their characteristics to help better characterize the population of near-Earth objects. NASA says amateur contributions will affect current and future space missions to asteroids. Amateur astronomers can help determine the position, motion, rotation, and changes in brightness of the asteroids. Then professional astronomers will use this information to refine theoretical models of asteroids, improving our understanding about asteroids similar to the one the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft will encounter. OSIRIS-REx is scheduled to launch in 2016 and will be a sample return mission from an asteroid with the not-so-poetic name 1999 RQ-36. 
When the spacecraft meets up with the asteroid in 2019, it will map the asteroid's global properties, composition, structure, and provide observations that can be compared with data obtained by telescope observations from Earth. In 2023, OSIRIS-REx will return back to Earth with at least 60 grams of surface material from the asteroid. The data provided by amateur astronomers for the Target Asteroids project will be useful for comparisons with actual mission data. For more information, visit osiris-rex.lpl.arizona.edu or simply Google Target Asteroids Project. If you love spiders or love to hate them, then mark your calendars for tomorrow night when the leader of the Colorado Spider Survey will speak at the Pepsi Center Cafe Sci. Paula Cushing has been studying spiders and their relatives for over 20 years. She can tell you everything from how strong spider silk is to which spiders in Colorado are poisonous. And the answer is surprisingly few. Plus how much they help us by eating insects. Get answers to all those pesky spider and arachnid questions that have been plaguing you for years. That's this Wednesday night at Cafe Sci at Brooklyn's at the Pepsi Center. It starts at 6.30 and it's free. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Joel Parker. And the song you're hearing, Stay Hungry, is along with the sound of Jim Pullen and his daughter frying bacon with all its red meat and saturated fat. You may have heard about the sizzling debate regarding just how much saturated fat and red meat you ought to eat. The USDA guidelines say to limit saturated fats and replace them with whole grains, fruits, and other sugars and starches. Some researchers hotly disagree. The same goes for red meat. Some research studies say it's safe to eat, and others say it will increase your risk of early death from cancer or heart disease or another malady. To get into the middle of the debate, up next we talk with Ron Krauss. Krauss is a senior scientist and director of atherosclerosis research at Children's Hospital Oakland Research Institute, adjunct professor of the Department of Medicine at UCSF and in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at UC Berkeley, and guest senior scientist in the Department of Genome Studies of Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. He's a pioneer in evaluating the size of a cholesterol particle and how these affect health, and he'll talk about that soon. As a sneak preview, he says that large cholesterol particles pattern A, are less risky than small cholesterol particles, pattern B. Now here he is talking with How on Earth's Shelley Schlender. Ron Krauss, there's so much debate right now about saturated fat. Some studies saying that it's perfectly fine to have it, and yet as a standard policy in most clinics, in most recommendations from institutions, it's keep your saturated fats low. Your research has been a little frustrating. You don't come out saying clearly one way or the other. Instead, you say it depends. It depends on what the saturated fat is eaten with. It's not as clean cut as we would like it to be. So I don't know if I have to apologize for the way things really are. That's the way they are. <laughs> and it's not my fault. <laughs> my job is to help people understand it in the simplest possible way. We're trying to work towards that. But the, simply the idea that saturated fat itself has an effect on health 
outside of the context of what one's eating is is already a naive concept. But uh, what we showed is that this is really more important than even we had realized when we started this work. We originally got into this because we were trying to study the effects of low saturated fat. I, my, my first studies that we published were aimed at, were really directed by the hypothesis that lowering fat was good for you. This was in the old days, and I came out of that background, and I, uh, we wanted to study lower fat diets. When was that? How long ago was that? Uh, we did our first studies in 19, starting in 1989, so it's been over 20 years ago that we started off this work. Uh, so as I think about it, I, I'm, I'm uh, somewhat shocked to realize how long I've been doing this kind of work. But along the way, we've learned things we didn't expect to see. In fact, for me, the most important advances and the most interesting ones certainly are the ones that come out with opposite results from what you started with, where you expected one result and the, the results came out differently. And that came out when we first studied lower fat diets, thinking that this would benefit the individuals who had higher heart disease risk, who had small particles, uh, pattern B profile, for example. What we found, to our surprise initially, was that when we fed these low-fat diets and substituted carbohydrate, which was at that time and still remains uh, the, the current paradigm, we really didn't achieve what we had wanted to achieve. There was some improvement in cholesterol in the individuals who had the small LDL profiles, but uh, what was really astonishing to me at the time was that the majority of the people we studied who had the normal metabolic profile, the normal LDL particles, the pattern A profile that we discussed earlier, a very large percentage of those people actually shifted into the pattern B mode. We did the equivalent of changing their hair color from red to blonde, or maybe blonde to red, by putting them on this higher carbohydrate diet. So we elicited what we think now is an underlying genetic susceptibility, which is very common in the population. And we're not just talking hair color here. We're talking about something that actually changed their health because those smaller particle pattern B cholesterols were more an indication of greater health risk. Bad news. It was like giving them this supposedly healthier diet that made them be more at risk. Yeah, and we were certainly concerned about these changes, increasing heart disease risk. So we turned our attention ultimately away from feeding higher carbohydrate, lower fat diets to doing the reverse, to really uh, lowering carbohydrate. And that's where we intersected with the world of people that were very interested in, in very low carbohydrate diets. We sort of worked our way into studies along those lines and ultimately published a study, it was now five years ago, in which we systematically compared different levels of carbohydrate keeping, in one case, fat constant, and in the other, loading it up with saturated fat. And what we found is that the carbohydrate reduction alone improved the metabolic profile in the majority of individuals independently of saturated fat intake. Now, was that the 2006 American Journal of Clinical Nutrition study? And in that one, you had a range of carbohydrates that people ate from 54% of their calories as carbohydrates to 26% of their calories as carbohydrates. That's right. We had actually three levels. The low was 26, the high was 54, and then we had 39% in between. And in some of those people, you fed them 8% of their calories as saturated fat, and in some you fed them 15%. On the lowest carbohydrate diet, the 26% carbohydrate, we jacked up the 
fat content with either monounsaturated or saturated fat, that is an olive oil type of fat versus, in this case, uh, high dairy fat. And you didn't see much difference in what happened to them in terms of the fat. There was more difference based on how much carbohydrate they were eating. Yes, and the improvement was clearly due to the carbohydrates. Meaning lowering carbohydrates generally made the improvement. That's right. The improvement was clearly due to reducing carbohydrates. You see, we need to say that because that's <laughs> backwards from how most people think it works. Yeah, I'd like to think that the world has come around, but obviously that's not true. We looked carefully at the saturated fat effects. We did see a signal for an increased LDL cholesterol level, but when we looked more carefully, it was not the small particles that went up. And in fact, the total particle concentration, which most people in our field agrees is a really strong indicator of risk, did not show any change in response to high saturated fat. Meaning that they still had plenty of fluffy cholesterol, which was the kind that you don't worry so much about. It's not that they got a lot more of the small particle, little BBs that indicate there's a lot going wrong. Yeah, those small particles remained low and saturated fat didn't affect those particles at all. And so if if a person just counted the ApoB proteins, the number of those in their blood, if they had a lot of those, that would be a better marker than seeing how much total cholesterol is in their blood because that would tell you if you have a whole bunch of those, then it says you probably have a lot of small particles. Exactly right. So ApoB is a sort of a first approximation of the small particle concentration. It's not measuring it exactly, but it's a whole lot more accurate index of the risk associated with LDL than LDL cholesterol itself. And I think this is being acknowledged more widely in the field of heart disease assessment. Has anybody told the American Heart Association this? Well, the American Heart Association does two things. It promotes scientific research and it makes statements from time to time. Certainly, I've been involved with that. But you see, their statements don't reflect this yet. Uh, No, no. There's still a lot of debate about whether we should be advancing beyond the old LDL cholesterol-based approach to risk assessment to understanding it on, on the basis of particle concentrations. But I think we're moving in the right direction. And as I said, the higher saturated fat diet that we fed, really high saturated fat, 15% versus 8%, in the setting of lower carb and a mixed protein diet, that's important for what I'm going to talk about later, proteins from various sources, from white meat and dark meat and chicken and fish and beef. Tofu. Tofu. You know, it was, it was just a mixed diet altogether. And so in that setting and carbohydrate intake that was kept moderately low, saturated fat did not raise apple B. It didn't raise any of the really meaningful indices of heart disease risk. So that was an interesting study. And then another one, right now there's some talk that red meat may be dangerous for people's health to eat. But the question is why? And you give a reason why in, let's see, what was that study in? Well, we published a paper uh, this uh, past fall in the Journal of Nutrition in which we reported the results of a study that we carried out as a follow-on to the one we just discussed And frankly, we felt at the time, based on the evidence we had, that feeding a high versus less saturated fat with a low carbohydrate intake would have the same benefit on a high beef diet versus a mixed protein diet. And the bottom line is, when we did the study, we found that that was not the case. And you found out that some of it not being the case also depended not only on what kind of protein that you were feeding, but what kind of fat that people were eating. This is a very high beef diet. People are eating beef breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So this is really way outside of what we would ever consider to be a usual health practice. Maybe some people do it. But we were really interested in the metabolic impact of this diet. And so we fed it in the context of either uh, lean beef 
with extra saturated fat. Uh, and then we fed the same beef product, low in fat, without the added saturated fat. We used unsaturated fat instead. Let's say the equivalent of a cheeseburger versus a lean hamburger. That sort of describes in a nutshell, if you will, the kind of differences that we were looking for. The beef with the low saturated fat didn't seem to have any adverse effects. Meaning that it didn't have adverse effects on the kinds of risk factors that indicate heart disease risk and that are showing up in these red meat studies as predictors of somebody dying. Right. Yeah. I mean, we were looking at standard risk factors for heart disease, including our own measurements, and we, and we didn't see any adverse effect if we just fed a high beef diet in the absence of saturated fat. So a lean burger without cheese looked on the surface as the one to do. Well, there may be other effects. There are studies now from the epidemiology world that are very convincingly pointing to red meat intake itself as having an association with risk for many disease outcomes ranging from cancer to heart disease to diabetes. Our measurements were really strictly focused on the metabolic risk factors for heart disease and diabetes. And in that setting, we couldn't detect a real significant signal. That doesn't mean that there aren't adverse effects that are occurring through other mechanisms. But using the cholesterol analyses and sugar measurements and inflammation measurements and other detailed metabolic studies, we didn't see anything that was particularly dangerous occurring if we kept the saturated fat very low. And yet what's interesting is what the punchline is going to be, which is very intriguing. So keep going with this story. Right. So the punchline is that we expected that because these diets had low carbohydrate, when we fed the high saturated fat, we would also see a pretty benign metabolic risk profile. And much to our surprise, and again, this is another one in the series of surprises that keep life interesting for us as uh, researchers and also, I think, for the world out there who happens to be looking over our shoulder, much to our surprise, the combination of the high beef diet plus the high saturated fat diet caused very serious increases in all of the cholesterol-related risk factors that we had been measuring, including total particle numbers, small LDL, Whatever we looked at, it looked like it was an adverse effect. Everything went wrong. Right. And this was in contrast to our earlier studies, which formed the basis for this particular study, where the same amount of saturated fat and very similar carbohydrate intake, but a diet that was not loaded up with red meat had no effect, even when we put lots of saturated fat in it. So if you put on your Sherlock Holmes hat and get out your magnifying glass, what is it that you found that is the likely smoking gun here? Well, I wish I could give you an answer to that question, but fortunately, the fact that we had these two very different results from the same research program with a very similar protocol with two different kinds of protein led us to propose to the National Institutes of Health, a major funding agency for biomedical research in this country, which will hopefully stay that way, that is allowing us now to investigate in a detective-like manner whether diets with the same amount of saturated fat but containing high red meat versus a non-meat diet, a vegetarian diet where the protein comes from vegetable sources, an intermediate diet, which is a white meat diet from chicken primarily, is whether the overall food profile influences the response to saturated fat in the way that we suspected from these earlier results. And that will allow us to investigate possible underlying mechanisms, one of which we're really interested in is the possibility that some other component of beef not necessarily the protein, but something that comes along with it, such as iron, would be one example that may have an adverse effect in conjunction with saturated fat. Well, you know what? In a detective novel, they talk about a red herring, and a red herring is taking someone off the track. But in this case, that color red 
which is caused by the iron in meat, actually may be the smoking gun. That's one of the number of possibilities. Why would the iron in red meat, when coupled with saturated fat, increase the chance? Right. So, so this is just an idea. And I'd have to uh, say this is, uh, in our whole discussion, the one area where we really don't have data. But it's an intriguing hypothesis because it's known from a variety of lines of evidence, genetic, population studies, and metabolic studies, that iron content of the liver in particular, which stores most of our iron as a repository for our needs for red blood cell production and many other metabolic processes, that that amount of iron, if it's excessive, can lead to impaired sugar metabolism and predispose even to diabetes in the extreme case. It's also been shown that it can be associated with an abnormal lipid profile of the type we're interested in. So we already have evidence that hepatic iron, iron in the liver, is a potential determinant of the kinds of things that can influence risk for diabetes and heart disease and could be related to the dietary response that we studied. Why beef should have a particular effect on hepatic iron only when you consume saturated fat is an intriguing collection of clues, if you will, that maybe Sherlock Holmes would be able to draw a definitive conclusion from, but we're still searching. It turns out that something called heme iron, the form in which iron is packaged in red meat, is absorbed pretty efficiently into the body. So that's why red meat is considered a, quote, good source, at least an abundant source of dietary iron. But it requires certain factors for absorption. What I discovered buried in the literature, which I certainly hadn't known, was in checking to see why the saturated fat should potentially increase the amount of iron that's coming in from, from beef. It turns out that certain kinds of saturated fat, beef tallow being one of them, stearic acid, uh, another form of saturated fat found in both dairy products and red meat, promotes the absorption of heme iron. The combination of having both a abundant source of iron and the fat going along with it to help absorb that iron might be what converts this dietary profile into a dangerous one. You know, looking back in time, there was a time where people were in wars and accidents more often where they had more parasites in their blood that would be going after the iron in the body. And so being able to conserve iron was actually protective. And these days we don't have the parasites and we don't have the blood bleeding out of us as much. So, Ron Krause, if someone likes cheeseburgers and they like them nice and juicy, should they give blood more often? <laughs> well, you ask a question that has come up in other contexts as well, as that is, uh, does keeping people's iron level low reduce the risk of heart disease? And there's been people that have claimed that women who have a natural protection from heart disease while they're menstruating, perhaps part of that is because they have lower iron stores. That's never really been proven. Does giving blood and reducing your iron stores reduce heart disease risk? We don't know. It'd be very interesting if we could answer that question. The real way to do that is not even from knowing what your diet is, but knowing how much iron you actually have, how much of the potentially dangerous iron you have in your system. And there are ways to assess that, and that might be a more useful index. But there's absolutely no basis yet for therapeutically reducing iron stores as a means of reducing heart disease risk. The way to do it, of course, is to stay away from the cheeseburger diet. However, you also told me that it's very hard to tell what the heme level of iron is in the liver. It's a very, very hard bit of data to go to. Yeah, I mean, there are markers that are, can be measured in the blood. We haven't measured all of them yet. We're, we're, part of the funding that we are getting from the NIH grant, uh, this new grant will allow us to measure these more accurate markers. And so it, it may be possible to tease out that information, but the standard iron tests in the blood are not sufficient, and that's where we need more information. 
Thanks to Shelley for that report. Ron Krauss is director of the Atherosclerosis Research at Children's Hospital Oakland Research Institute. For the extended version of this interview, check our website, howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender and engineered by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Talking Heads. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Joel Parker.